there is one thing that you must always be committed to, I think, and that is the truth. You must never go along with a lie. Is America exceptional or fundamentally flawed? These abstract moral questions dominating our political discourse often lead to highly inflammatory debates in what we call the culture wars. Some might say that the culture wars distract us from important policy discussions. Others might say that these arguments are fundamentally about civilization itself. Either way, it's essential that we understand how culture drives political discourse. To help me dissect this phenomenon, I'm joined by Robin Kerner, an AIER visiting fellow, as well as the academic dean at the John Locke Institute located in Oxford. He received his graduate degrees from Cambridge University in physics and philosophy, and he has written on cultural issues ranging from ideological possession during the COVID era, as well as the virtue of living truthfully at all costs. Live and let live is what is up for grabs in mm. the culture war. Like, if, if you want to say that, right? And if, and if you want to say that, then I'll say, well, I'm very much on one side of that war. Mm. Um, although the thing that gets me um, really, uh, I don't know, passionate is we seem to be at a point now where, where what? some people want to put up for grabs is the very notion of truth itself, mm. right? It's almost like, you know, they want to rewrite mathematics. It's just getting a bit silly. And, um, and I would say the line that I draw on any issue is nobody gets to make me lie, mm -hmm. right? Mm. I actually think the line, um, the hill to die on is when society or somebody else demands that you lie Die on that mm. hill. Like if I've got to pick a hill to die on, mm. and why not? Because we're all going to die anyway. So let's make it count. Mm. Um, that that's the one. So that um, uh, so I so that sounds a little um, I don't know meta, fundamental, or whatever. But actually, it obviously relates directly to issues that get people hot under the collar right now, um, like uh, you know pronouns and, mm. and trans rights and things like that. Like it, we see it in a lot of places playing out. Um, and uh, that's troublesome, you know, mm. I, I think. Um, mm. When those kind of things are up for grabs, then everything's up for grabs. Mm. And I think that's an interesting nuance you can sort, because I guess my, I'll sort of play or still, or I guess I am sort of don't really understand how to approach it. And that could be like your nuanced response. It's like, there are some parts of the so-called culture war that are important, some parts that need to be tamped down a little bit, but ultimately um, culture is important and it's going to be around. We need to engage with it. And that, that's sort of like, that's your advice on maybe to me and the general public of like, how do we navigate all okay, this? Okay, so, so yeah, so, so um, maybe to be a bit more concrete about it, the cultural commanding heights, if you like, mm -hmm. they exist. They're the media, they're education, like media may be more short term, mm -hmm. right? They can, the media in general can drive what everyone's talking about for the next week or year or whatever. Um, education is going to determine not entirely, but largely where the next generation is going. Mm -hmm. um, the left has been very successful, I would say, in the Anglosphere, going back well, two generations, um, in, uh, let's say, supporting um, leftist political moves, or let's say even leftist cultural moves, because to a large extent, they got the teachers and they got the children back in, you know, go back mm -hmm. to the 80s, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's, I actually remember before I had any interest in politics, when I was a teenager in England, and I had no interest in politics, but I do remember um, a documentary series, TV documentary, wanting to get access to Exeter University teacher training courses. Mm -hmm. Exeter University is, um, it's a good university in the UK, 
serious mm, universe. Yeah, I've heard of it. And um, but it was particularly renowned, and it probably still is, for all I know, for uh, its education mm-hmm. department. You know, teacher training stuff like, such like. And um, but and and I remember, and this is I say this is a long time ago, but I it stuck with me that. This documentary, this mainstream documentary show, could not get access. Could would not was not allowed in to mm-hmm. the teacher training courses at Exeter University. It was like they had something to hide. Mm. Well, they did have something to hide, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, because what was being taught, um, certainly at that time, there was uh, a lot of you know outright, um, you know, Marxism and and so on and so forth. It was highly politicized, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know that's. We've got to care about that. I mean, if we're if we're classical liberals or libertarians or whoever we might be, conservatives. I mean, I don't. However you identify, mm-hmm. if somebody is taking over the cultural commanding heights and they want to run the country in the opposite direction from you, you you either have to not care anymore, mm. or you've got to, you know, acknowledge that there's an issue and you might you might choose to do something about it. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's just the reality. I don't think I don't, I don't know. I think that's quite uncontroversial. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why is an Englishman so concerned about American politics? Oh, oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> everybody needs to be concerned about American politics mm. because, um, oh, you know, cliche alert, but Shining City on the Hill and all that, mm. right? Um, if you spend time in Europe, um, not specifically in England, but in on content on the continent of Europe, um, where I've taught, and I've taught in you know, countries like Poland and Slovakia and the Czech Republic or whatever, um, you get, you, you will appreciate that America matters, that the standards that America set for the things that America has traditionally liked to talk about. Um, so, you know, uh, liberty and, and, and civil rights and, and so on. Um, they have made a concrete practical difference to the histories of these other nations in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, they make a practical difference to uh, people all around the world, people who are looking to um, maybe gain for themselves some of the rights that Americans have regarded themselves as champions of. Um, now, uh, there is uh, maybe some kind of inertia, historical inertia, because we might well say that um, the freedom fighters in, oh, I don't know, I'm sorry, Hong Kong, um, some of them, um, and people might dispute that term I'm using, but let's say uh, that there are some students free- fighting for freedom in other other countries that um, are willing to put a lot more on the line mm-hmm. than uh, most Americans um, right now, right? Um, but that doesn't change the fact that brand America matters, right? Mm. It matters that um, the place that, let's say, self-consciously has pursued certain values and has championed them everywhere uh that that place still exists it's still doing it and it's still working because Mm. in some respects when america fails or those things fail in america people in other parts of the world in more tyrannized parts of the world they lose a lot of hope because they're like well then we've you know what are we what are we shooting for you know do we have any chance right it just doesn't exist anywhere why do we think we can create it here wherever we might be mm-hmm. um so brand america uh, still matters now obviously um uh, you, you know i've written about all the uh, respects in which uh, the united states has done the very opposite has built the very opposite mm. of those things um in its own country um increasingly now you mentioned the culture wars mm-hmm. um we can talk about that but also abroad you know i mean we as a nation uh, the united states our foreign policy 
we could say historically leaves a lot to be desired. Um, you know, the, the road to hell being paved with good intentions. We'll mm. talk about that too. So I'm not whitewashing anything. I'm not saying it's all um, kittens and rainbows. It isn't. But psychologically, it, it matters. American politics, um, American democracy, American liberty matter as a standard that can be looked to by people outside America. Hmm. And when you use the term brand America, and I guess this is especially important as essentially being a foreigner looking in versus someone mm. in the inside looking out, um, I guess it goes back to the original point I made in the beginning of the culture, quote unquote, being a cultural question being, is America racist or is America exceptional? And that's sort of like one of those questions that doesn't really have strong policy implications, but still matters in the discourse. So I guess on that note, like what exactly is brand America? And maybe what are the two like cultural ways okay. you can look at it? Well, I don't know that there are two ways of looking at it. I mean, there. Um, it has been said, and I forget who said it, uh, but I think there's a lot of insight in it that... Um, Anything, anything that can be rightly said about America, the opposite can also be rightly said. Mm -hmm. um, there is something of that in America, the diversity. I, I, um, uh, I, also, I'm thinking of um, Bill Clinton's quote that uh, there's nothing that's wrong with America that can't be fixed by what's right with America. Mm. Um, I really hope he's right. I mean, I think there's... Um, you, again, with respect to the culture war, there are all kinds of very scary things happening in our culture and politics right now. Quite extreme things, I would mm -hmm. say. Um, but I also see the reaction against those things um, coming out of the American grassroots. Now, I don't know what's going to win in the end, if ever there is an end. Maybe mm -hmm. there's no such thing as an end in politics, right? All mm -hmm. there is is transience, right? There's mm -hmm. no final equilibrium. Um, but, uh, you know, it's interesting to me to watch this play out. Um, and obviously I do cheer on, you know, one side or the other in mm -hmm. certain particular questions. Um, you said you framed it interestingly, exceptional or racist. I mean, it occurs to me that they're not, that's not a dichotomy. I mm. mean, it could be both. It could be neither. Mm -hmm. um, I, I see racism in America, but not in the way that all the Americans worry about it. Mm. Um, the racism that I see as a born non-American where we're not, obs okay, let me back up. The American obsession with race is a very American obsession. Mm -hmm. It's not like racism is all this thing and Americans are doing it. This, you know, it's, it's a big thing everywhere and Americans are having to sort their particular man historical manifestation out of it. There's, an, there's a certain obsessiveness, I think, here. And again, it's just an opinion and I'm speaking as an outsider. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we did slavery in England too, but we, we got over it, <laughs> you know, we're well over it, right? Mm. Um, but, uh, what I, my concern, and it is a concern with respect to race in the United States, again, as someone that wasn't brought up in this, so it doesn't feel normal to me, mm -hmm. is that everything must be seen through a racial lens, even when it need not be. Um, and even when the doing so creates the very problems that people who are looking through that lens purport to want to want to, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Um, there is, in many areas of life, um, you know, uh, uh, you see, you, you get what you see, right? You can create reality by how you look at something. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think um, that's an issue in the United States, especially with respect to race. Um, and we, I mean, we could 
talk a lot more about that, I suppose. Um, America being exceptional, the other side of your uh, mm. dichotomy. Um, you know, in my book, which I wrote a while ago now, I did suggest that if America is exceptional, it is because it explicitly and consciously um, puts certain values um, meta to politics, mm. right? Um, so there are certain things that are not politically up for grabs. So these are the values that, um, that are instantiated in the Constitution. Um, they're manifest uh, by rights, or in rights, one might say, that are enumerated in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Um, that idea that there are some things that civilization, that freedom depends on, that are not, uh, that let's say, that, that are not up for grabs in every political discussion. That is exceptional, I think. And, mm. and, and let me give, make it a bit more clearer. In the United Kingdom, for example, we have socialized medicine, National Health Service, which everybody in the UK loves, by the way, interestingly mm. enough. We could talk about <laughs> that too. Um, it's now to many Americans, when we had the Affordable Care Act, right? the right, mostly, um, were very upset about the implications of turning over one-seventh of the economy, basically, to the government, mm -hmm. quite rightly, right? Mm -hmm. And so there were arguments not only about healthcare, but there were arguments about governance. Mm. There, those arguments about governance don't really happen anywhere else in the world alongside arguments about specific issues because the governance question has already been entirely conceded, right? Mm. And what I mean by that is if the government decides by democratic majority that um, something's going to change, then that thing can change because that's our democracy. Mm. Not in America, right? This is the distinction that a lot of, um, you know, uh, Republicans um, uh, or libertarians would make between mm. when, you know, when they say, we're not a democracy, we're a constitutional republic. That matters, right? Um, so any, any uh, question about any issue in the United States also has implications for governance, which Americans care about. Mm. Do those implications impinge on, if you like, or ab um, uh, diminish in some way or attack in some way those supposedly meta-political um, values? Uh, it is good that America cares about that, that America mm. gets scared when it changes a president, uh, a precedent for governance by letting government take over something that really it's uh, it doesn't um, have uh, the right to take over. Mm. Uh, that distinction between there are things that government can may do and may not do. It's very consciously held in the United States. And I think that's exceptional. Mm. Um, in the UK, it is not. Mm. In and the UK is closer to the United States um, in terms of political culture than um, than for obvious reasons than uh, continental Europe. You mm. know, other developed Western democracies. So, US is here, UK here, rest of the world maybe here mm -hmm. or rest of Europe here. It's kind of exceptional. Mm. It's kind of exceptional. Now. Um, it is true that America is quickly becoming less exceptional on this dimension by the day mm -hmm. um, because Americans care, are caring less about what sets America apart by mm. the day. Um, these, you know, pre-political or meta-political values. Um, 
And that is a great shame. And interestingly, immigrants like me who come to America because we want to be in America, not because we're fleeing something awful. I could have had quite a happy life in the mm. UK if I'd wanted. Um, we tend to see it more starkly, I think, than a lot of native-born Americans. Um, and we are more concerned that America doesn't lose it because we came for it, mm. right? So don't throw it away because we just got here because we want to have some, you know? Mm. Um, so uh, I know I've said a lot of things there. I don't know which thread you want to pull out, but mm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, this goes to, I want to touch on sort of one of the big, principles that you've outlined which is and this is like a very common talking point which is culture precedes politics and in a way you're saying that um there are certain things that are preserved that are good about america such as our uh, fundamental liberties or se our system of limited government not necessarily because every american like went to law school and studied the constitution but because we have a cultural norm that just yeah. says freedom is good just like in england um, I remember when I studied abroad there, there was all sorts of slogans like, we love our NHS, um, yeah. you know, his majesty's government, we love his majesty's government, don't question, you know, like that sort of stuff. And that's why England can have these sort of uh, center values that kind of keep the country together, keep certain important policies uh, in place. Um, so how exactly does a, how does culture pro precede politics and how do, how do you think we, or America actually established um, the sort of this ether of, of freedom. Yeah, okay, so good question, important question. So first of all, when I say culture precedes politics, or when you say it, I would just say um, that's to a first approximation, right? Um, you can find examples where it kind of works the other way around. Um, so I just want to be clear that in general, culture mm. precedes politics. And I should also mention here the Overton window, right? Mm. Um, the Overton window, the idea that um, you, can, in, you can act in mainstream politics within a range of uh, positions or views. Um, and so one way of th thinking about culture preceding politics is that culture sets where that Overton window is and how wide it is, right? Um, so uh, ju just to be clear about those terms. Um, well, uh, the people who founded America. I mean, it sounds so cliche to say it, but the people who founded America um, had done the, they'd done the work, mm. you know, they'd read uh, John Locke. They read, I mean, we could go through the names, right? Mm. Um, they were very consciously um, uh, trying to build the society, very explicitly trying to build the society that incorporates the best of what had been learnt um, in philosophy and governance and and so on up until that point and the and the men that did that um they'd they'd read the right books and they'd thought a lot about the experiences um uh, the political experiences that they'd encountered and the cultural experience that they'd encountered and they um they took a long time over it and they were very careful about it and it seems generally speaking that they acted with great integrity mm. and we've been um uh, living off that, we being, you know, the mm. citizens of the United States of America. Um, the, the other thing, though, I would say about that, and this is not sufficiently appreciated by Americans in America, in my opinion, is that they came, though they were operating in largely a British classical liberal tradition. Mm -hmm. And when the... Um, you know, the Patriots gave uh, two fingers, uh, well, it's now one finger in America, up at uh, mm -hmm. George III. <laughs> they weren't saying we repudiate uh, 
all of the values of England. Mm -hmm. They weren't saying, um, we reject all of this, we're going in a 180 degree mm. different direction. What they were saying was, um, as British people, we have certain rights that right now the British establishment is not honoring. Mm. Shame on you, Britain. You know better. Mm -hmm. And so in um, most of the appeals that were made by the Patriots, you know, before the War of Independence actually, you know, kicked off, all of those appeals that were made back to um, the, the British uh, monarchy and the British Parliament, they were in terms of Magna Carta. Right. Um, you know, there's uh, is, is it actually we're in Massachusetts? My, this is my first week in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. It might actually be Massachusetts um, seal that has the Magna Carta on it, actually. Mm. Um, you know, uh, Supreme Court, the doors of the Supreme Court have Magna Carta on them. Um, it, the appeals that were going back to to England were as Englishmen, we over here in the colonies still have our rights as Englishmen, and you are not honouring them. So, so the, the dispute with the motherland was not to be different from the motherland, but mm. to be what the motherland claimed it was mm. and, um, to, uh, and to allow the, the patriots, what they wanted was um, the rights that they had as Brits. Not, do you see what I'm trying to say? Mm. Um, so, so, you know, and it's called a revolution. Well, a revolution isn't 180 degrees, is it? That's half a revolution. Mm. A revolution is 360. Mm. And the American Revolution really was a revolution in that technical sense. It was 360. It was saying, no, no, um, we already have these rights, uh, but you're not allowing us to exercise them. All right, so we'll fight you so that we can. Mm. But they weren't asking for something new. They were asking for what they already had to be honored. Um, if they had not come out of the British classical liberal tradition, um, if they had not come out of, um, you know, the place that came up with Magna Carta and the petition of right and the grand remonstrance mm. and all the documents that these men had read and knew and some pieces of which, by the way, are actually verbatim in the founding documents of mm -hmm. the United States, which most Americans don't realize, <laughs> but seems to be rather important, right? Mm. Um, if all that weren't the case, then America would not have become what we're saying it is and is valuable. Mm. So you asked me how it came about, and there's some of, some of the reasons. Mm. It was a conscious effort. Mm. And is this something that necessarily needs to be um, kept over time, taught in the schools? And I guess this goes to a lot of uh, arguments today, which would p many people would say, oh, these are, you know, it's such an American way of looking at it. Like, oh, that's such a, maybe some people might say white. Uh, many people would say Anglo-American, which is the term I like to use. And so what you're saying is, um, sure, many cultures can fundamentally live under these values. It's been, you know, liberal democracy and the classical liberal values have been tried in many countries. They work pretty well. Um, but the answer is yes. This is, in a way, an Anglo-American tradition. And it's not just um, like a very like cost-benefit analysis of, oh, these things are good, these things are bad. But in a way, it's like these are, this is also our culture and this is what makes us who we are. I think that's, I think that's obviously true because... The culture determines what words get used a lot mm. in answer to what questions, you know, um, what thoughts are triggered in response to what statements mm. or what things you see on the news. And culture rather determines that. Mm. Um, now, just to be clear, um, there is a sense in which the Anglo-American, uh, let's say, tradition of liberty isn't unique. Mm. You can... Um, you can obviously find um, philosophy 
and moments in history uh, that instantiate liberty um, in different cultures, in different countries, right? And the, the, the moments that matter um, for, the, for freedom in different countries and different cultures tend to be moments where a particular culture finds a way of making the ideas of liberty or indeed any ideas their own mm. right so there's so so in in our tradition magna carta would be an obvious one mm. right um the, and the declaration of independence in the case of the united states an obvious one but different countries have their own magna cartas right mm. um yeah whether it's the the you, you could find it in in hungarian history for mm. example so in as much as those values in those other cultures are operative you will find, you will see the importance of and the reverence for those moments in the history of those cultures where the relevant bits of philosophy or the relevant ideas become concretized in politics, you know, historically. Mm. So that is, that's a, that's a ubiquitous phenomenon. Um, but since we're talking about education, you asked me about, you know, do we need to teach this? I would say it makes sense for every country to teach mm. its own history, um, to teach the good and the bad of it. And I don't think you can seriously understand America if you don't understand some of what we're talking about here. Um, I, it, you know, if I had kids, I would want them to, and they were American, mm -hmm. I would want them to know some of that. Just as if I had kids and they were English, you know, I'd be quite happy for them to know a little bit about, um, you know, the Eng you know, English history and the kings and the queens. Not because one's better or worse, but because um, it's how we understand ourselves and how we understand how we in our culture make the best of ourselves or maybe have failed to make the best of ourselves. Like, mm. we need to learn the good and the bad. Um, I mean, of course, we should learn the good and the bad of other cultures, too. But um, in some ways, understanding like charity begins at home because mm. it begins with what you can most identify with. Right. Mm. And of course, you identify most with the culture in which you're brought up. The culture in which you're brought up determines the things that you take for granted that you don't even know aren't everywhere. Mm. So uh, that touches on a great point and going into sort of. What exactly, when people use the term culture war today, and then I, I think a big facet everyone, many people can point to is over-education, for example, critical race theory, uh, trying to teach American history in a very racialized, um, you know, fundamentally racist, ra racist way, and then the Trump administration essentially create like an alternative curriculum, the basic trying to glorify uh, things about America. So when we talk about um, sort of like, culture, especially as it pertains to all the fights over school curriculums today, uh, do you think that that's sort of a fundamental understanding of both sides, the left and the right, that what we teach our kids and how we portray America culturally is very important to how the policy implications of that will, will come out? Um, well, I guess, I guess it's what I, I said earlier, that um, the way you educate your kids has an effect mm. right that's it and if it didn't you wouldn't bother educating them would you mm -hmm. right i mean if it had no effect whatsoever why are we even bothering mm -hmm. um uh, if it had no effect whatsoever why why what is there to play for mm -hmm. why does trump care why do the left care if there's nothing really to play for if you're playing for the minds of kids you're playing for the you're paying you're playing for the minds of 
everybody, mm-hmm. right, eventually. Because those kids grow up and they vote and they become leaders. Um, so all I'm saying is it matters. I, and I'm not saying, um, and I'm not, as it were, flying the flag for a particular curriculum or some other curriculum. Um, what I'm saying is when it comes to education, your obligation is to truth. Um, your obligation certainly is, if we're talking about history education, for example, certainly um, to realizing that nobody by the time they're out of school is going to have a full picture of history. Um, I think a good way of approaching history, this kind of history, would would be to try and help students understand what ideas have resulted in what outcomes and to what extent. And also to um, point to hypocrisies, right? Juxtapose maybe um, the claim that these ideas are good with these actions that do not correspond with those ideas. What you know? What have these ideas produced? What have these actions produced? I mean, I mentioned um, you know American foreign policy disasters. Um, there are plenty, mm. right? Um, oh, we say we believe in this, but then we go and do this. Is that consistent or not? I mean, if I'm teaching someone to be a good historian, I mean, that's a basic skill mm-hmm. um, I think you want them to have. Um, cri- critical thinking. I-, I guess all I'm doing is saying truth and critical thinking. And I don't really care about the way in. As long as if you present a perspective, you're honest about the fact that that's what you're doing and you empower students to see, to find other views. You've got to be teaching without worrying too much about the particular outcome in terms of the belief of the student. Mm-hmm. You've got to empower that student to make his own way or her own way mm-hmm. right, intellectually in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, the the, the, the beliefs that they end up forming. Mm-hmm. Um, when I mean, I think any school that's trying to inculcate particular beliefs in students, that's not a school. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yes, it's more of a like political indoctrination more than learning. Yeah. And, and that is what education seems to be increasingly becoming, or, or some people want to make it that. Mm. And that's what I'm against, if mm. I'm against anything when it comes to education. Mm. And so when people use it, when I think a lot of pe- pundits in the media today would say, you know, American politics is becoming too volatile, um, it's coming too hot, the stakes are too high, people are arguing too much. Why do you think there is so much debate over, you know, like transgender bathrooms, toxic masculinity, you know, is everything racist, um, to smoke weed, not to smoke, you know, all these lifestyle questions that have nothing to do with whether or not my taxes are going up or down or whether or not um, I'm going to be able to, like, you know, open a business or something like that or educate my my kids in the, at a good school. But, you know, like things that many Americans and many uh, advocacy groups would continue to say are irrelevant. The American people are tired of it, but these voices are just so loud and they dominate the conversation. So why is that happening? I think you make a good point that... Um the what that many people the most probably the majority of people are tired of a lot of this um and still it goes on and it's because the vocal minority has taken the cultural commanding heights which goes to my point right Mm -hmm. um you know the very fact that we're even you're asking me that question you're listing those issues is because the people that want us bothered about those issues they've got those commanding heights Mm. and the people that um had other uh, let's say philosophical or political commitments, they vacated the space, right? Mm. Um, you know, it's it's a tricky one because here I am saying um, uh, education 
it shouldn't be about it shouldn't really fundamentally be about politics it shouldn't be about certainly shouldn't be about politicizing students but the problem is there are a bunch of people that absolutely want to take over education to do that. Mm. So as someone who doesn't want to do that, I'm kind of by default having to act politically just in resisting that, right? Mm. That's kind of a political act, mm. um, you might say, or a political position. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, the, it's happened because the minority, it's the determined, it's the, it's the Mead quote, right, about the determined minority. The determined minorities put themselves in the places and got themselves the megaphones where they can disproportionately dictate. They can dictate our discourse and they can um, affect uh, the beliefs of the kids who are leaving schools, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'm sure you know the, the, the statistics, the, the likes of which Jonathan Haidt compiles, mm -hmm. right? Yes. About um, how the humanities are absolutely overrun with um, uh, leftist academics. Mm -hmm. um, Okay, overrun isn't his word; it's my word. Mm -hmm. But um, you know that's a problem, and I and I don't care if you're a progressive. If you're progressive, good luck to you. You know, mm -hmm. but uh, let's put. But you shouldn't be happy with that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, if you're a progressive, you should not be happy with that level of representation of your view exclusively mm -hmm. um, in the academy, because that means the academy is failing as the academy. Um, and if you care about kids' education, which is something all of us do, I think and especially progressives, um, that's not good enough. Mm. Um, so what are we doing about it? Uh, so, so the flip side of that is the minority, the vocal minority, the fervent minority has done the work. The majority that is quieter, that is getting on living its life, um, has been very quiet for very long, which mm. is fine because, as I say, they're getting on living their life. They're not, you know, they've got other things to do than take over the academy or take over the media. Um, but at some point, um, the silenced majority mm. has to say, right, okay, this, the just getting on with our lives has cost us too much because of what has been taken over. Mm. Um, and we have to increasingly start refusing to comply, right? Um, just, you've got to stand up. Like I so said, we're starting to see parents standing up for basic common sense in schools against... Mm. Um, certain kind of uh let's say activist uh politically driven um rules that are go that their kids are subject to right mm. um so on and so forth and uh you know the majority always operates late right we we've, we're waking up or people are waking up no, basically apolitical people are waking up saying oh, okay um that's an ayn rand point right that um that it would be nice not to have to deal with politics, but if you don't deal with politics, then politics deals with you. Mm. Um, okay, so we're waking up, more and more people are waking up to that. Um, and the thing is, when when they come for your kids, that's the moment. If mm. you've got kids, when they come for the kids, right, then everything else becomes less important when you're mm. protecting your kids. And I think a lot of the, um, what we might say, maybe extreme kind of leftist um, culture warriors they've started coming for the kids. Mm. Um, and I think just regular decent Americans, and I don't mean conservative Americans, I just mean just normal people, many of whom vote Democrat, mm -hmm. you know, are going, hold on, this is getting silly now. Mm. Um, this is getting dangerous now. Um, and, and at a great, you know, this is a great time to be making that point because the level of compliance with a takedown of rights that was the lockdown, mm. that was, you know, the, the mandates, um, that was the... Um, coerced 
medical treatment without informed consent, mm. without informed consent. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's an outrage. And the fact that the majority of Americans actually said, yeah, we'll have some of that. Mm. Right. I mean, this is this is the lights going off in the shining city of the hill right mm. on the hill. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's all up for grabs. Normal people now need to say absolutely not. And I don't know that enough are and that if enough are that they will in time. Mm. There's hope, but I don't know how it's going to play out. Mm. So it's clear that any political savvy camp understands that these cultural questions then lead to political outcomes that favor their side. And you've got this silent majority who doesn't want to deal with this, wants to live their lives, wants to be left alone. That's increasingly being squeezed uh, by both sides, whether it's one agenda or the other. So given that, given that people want to, maybe people maybe want to see an end to the so-called culture war. They want to see de-escalation of these tensions. What is Robin Kerner's advice to this, to, to the average American who just wants to send their kids to a nice school, wants the neighborhood to be safe, wants to mm. um, just, you know, have some savings to pass on. Do they get involved in the culture war? Do they vote a certain way? Do they try to de-escalate? What is the solution? Okay, so um, kind of in one way, I agree with Ron Paul on this, right? Ron mm -hmm. Paul always used to say, whatever, whatever feels right to you, whatever moves you, do that. However you are moved, do that. Um, what is good for one person is not going to work for another. Um, what somebody can really get their teeth into, someone's going to leave somebody cold. What um, a fight that somebody over here might be good at taking on, maybe even winning, somebody over here may not have the wherewithal to even confront, right? So it's different for different people and it's different for different situations. Um, so for example, if, I mean, just because I used the example of, of the parent with the kid at school and there's something crazy coming down the line at the kid, um, well then that's the situation you've been given. Then that's your fight, probably, right? Um, and anything I might say about, well, this is more important or that's more important in general. No, no, no. That's your fight because that's what you're moved to do. You know, that's you, the eggs. Your eggs are in that basket. They're in the basket of your kid or whatever it might be. Right. Um, so I would I would make that general point that there's no one answer that fits all, except there kind of is. Mm. There is one thing that you must always be committed to i think and that is the truth mm. you must never go along you must never go along with a lie and we've been people have been doing this right people have been going along with um uh acting on or saying things that they don't really believe because the cost of so doing of, of doing otherwise is too high right so for example maybe going along with a mandate um a vaccine ma mandate, again, just because we mentioned it, it's in my mind and it's something I happen to care about um, at work. Um, because, because you don't want to face all of the trauma of losing your job. Um, well, okay, um, then if, if you actually believe that, uh, that this is a step too far with respect to people's liberties, if you believe that, um, then you've got to pay the price, right? Or you're part of the problem. Like sometimes you don't you don't get to sit it out, right? When they come for you mm. with the gun or the needle or mm. the textbook or whatever it is, right? You've got to say, yeah, okay, I will go along. And in going along, you normalize it and you make it easier for the people doing it. Mm. Or you've got to say no, and this might hurt me. Mm. 
And um, the attitude of no, and this might hurt me, is that's the attitude that in everybody's different situations, you've got to be prepared to take when the chips are down. Um, and, and obviously you do have to pick your battles. But I actually think once you concede, as I say, um, once you give up the commitment to truth, um, once you actually go along with, the, with a lie or something you believe in your heart of hearts to be wrong, doesn't matter what anyone else believes, and you comply, then, you're, then you've gone to the dark side. That's it. Mm. You've, then you've lost it. Um, you know, the, the history of the values that matter, including liberty, but not just that one, is the history of men and women dying for it when they had to. Mm. And um, sometimes it's obvious that they're dying and why. Like, I don't know, when the Nazis try and invade England, right? Mm. Then, okay, well, all the English are going to you know, fight back, right? But sometimes it's less obvious. Um, and sometimes it's less obvious, not because it's not easy to see, but because everybody's got a vested interest in not seeing what's actually going on, right? So I mentioned the Nazis. Um, there are a lot of people that had a vested interest in not seeing what the Nazis were doing to the Jews in their own cities. Now, there's a lot of people in America that have had a vested interest in not seeing um, the terrifying implications of what um, we've let the government do um, with respect to, you know, the mandates mm. and um, the coerced uh, vaccination, experimental treatments um, and the lockdowns. I mean, <laughs> we, we people want to house arrest in this country. Mm. Um, and then you can argue, you can try and backtrack and you can say, oh, well, not really. And it wasn't really enforced. No, you know what they were saying. You know what they were trying to do. What side do you want? Mm. Right. Um, now, if you don't, if you're not on any side, if you don't think that matters, if you think it's absolutely fine, then you don't have any moral obligation to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. But I do because mm -hmm. I don't think it's OK. You know, I don't think it's OK to stand by when um, a school tells a child something that is uh, demonstrably false, let's say. Mm. I'm not thinking of any particular example there, but I would, you know, um, or even to um, go along with um, an instruction at work that is premised on a falsehood. Um, yeah, if you want to put your, you know, just carry on making a salary and paying your mortgage, you can do that. That's a choice. But realize you're part of the corruption. If mm. to make that choice, excuse me, um, you're conceding your integrity and your commitment to truth. Once you concede the commitment to truth, you've, um, you can't be counted on to defend anything of value, right? Right. Um, because you can make anything up. You can accept mm. anything. Um, so that's where I draw the line. Mm. Um, and I, that's where I think everybody should draw the line. But I understand that the drawing of that line looks completely different for different people in different situations with maybe different opinions about different things. Mm. And I guess sort of the, the quick, maybe utopian, maybe kind of crazy, but maybe not so much answer would be not having a government that has the ability to impose all these mandates from 10,000 feet above for either side, essentially living in a free society. Maybe, maybe perhaps uh, that could work. Maybe that's worked for us for the past 200 years. Well, there you go to um, a, an important general point that uh, certainly classical liberals and libertarians like to make, which is, um, you know, you only have, you only have these like uh, kind of brutal political or cultural wars when what is at stake is the power of a government to do things that no government really should have the power to do, right? Mm. If the government has this kind of power, then it makes sense to fight hard for it because it might be used by your opponents against you, 
Mm. Right. Um, if we don't have kind of governance that allows this level of intrusion, this level of mandate, um, then uh, there's less to play for. There's going to be less polarization because it's safer just to get on and live your own life whilst letting the other guy live his, doing the live and let live. It is the power and size of government that makes live and let live impossible. Right. Mm. So, yes, I mean, that's a very important point. Mm. Well, I'd love to wrap up uh, what has been an ex excellent interview. And I guess before we leave, I have one burning question, which is how does someone with a physics graduate degree talk about all this? Oh, wow. Oh, that's a good question. Oh, I'm sorry we don't have another hour. Um, <laughs> if I have anything interesting or original to say, and maybe I don't, but if I do, um, I think it's because uh, I come at questions of politics and culture and economics not having gone through the normal education for somebody interested in those things. Mm. Um, I think it enables me to see certain ideas and assumptions uh, anew, mm -hmm. um, but with kind of, let's say, the experiences of adulthood mm -hmm. and go, actually, I uh, no, I, uh, oh, I don't get that. Or really? Um, or actually, that is based on an assumption that deserves questioning. Um, because I haven't, uh, say, I haven't kind of bought into all the, um, or even been exposed to um, the regular body of ideas that constitutes the training for somebody interested in in the humanities so i actually like being um i mean so you mentioned at the beginning that i'm uh, the dean at the john locke institute we're there concerned with the humanities it's philosophy mm. politics economics and history um i like being in that space as someone who's trained in physics um for the reason I've just given, but also because I actually do think, and I'm biased, I admit my bias here, that there is no better mental training in terms of just rigor, sharpness, mm. logic than mathematics or physics. Mm. Um, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for pursuing either of those subjects as far as you can, whatever else you want to do. Um, there are right and wrong answers in those subjects. Hmm. And I think it helps to come to the humanities with at least a preference for finding right answers or at least where they cannot be found definitively, being able to see why the answer that may otherwise be given by somebody else is wrong. Hmm. Um, yes, I, I, but I'm also a polymath. I've always been a bit of a generalist and, mm -hmm. you know... Uh, and I, it was philosophical questions that actually moved me into physics, but that's a conversation for another day. Mm, of course. Well, Robin, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks, Ethan. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you really like what you heard today and want to support more cutting-edge researchers like Robin, make sure to become a donor. All that information and more can be found at aier.org.